Hebrews chapter 4. We are there once again today, and we're going to be looking today at just one verse, uh, coming back and looking more closely at the 12th verse, a familiar verse, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so, Lord, just bless now as we consider your word in Jesus' name. So in our last study, as you perhaps Remember, we considered these verses in the larger context of the writer's warning not to come short of God's rest through unbelief, for that will result in judgment, uh, just as it did on their ancient ancestors who came out of Egypt led by Moses. And so as, as we pointed out, as we're making our way through, as we're trying to uh, maintain the continuity of thought. He, he's warning them not to repeat the sins of their fathers. And what, what were their sins? Their sins were uh, really the sins of unbelief that resulted in disobedience that uh, prevented them from experiencing what God really intended for them. And that, of course, was uh, entry into uh, the promised land. And so we, we went through verse 13 last week and we saw how uh, verses 12 and 13 are connected to that warning and they are a reminder for the word of God is living and powerful. They are a reminder that what God said uh, to the ancient Israelites and uh, the, the warning of judgment that it still stands uh, for them at the time. And so we saw it in its original context. But today I want to take the verse that I mentioned uh, previously. You remember that most of the time when we think about this verse or we hear it quoted, we, we generally uh, think about it outside of its context. We think about it just in the sense of what it's saying about the word of God itself. And that's the look that I want to uh, take at it here today. So looking uh, more generally at what it teaches us about the word of God. And so for the word of God, he says, first of all, is living. The word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible is a living book. It's a living book. And of course, those on the outside don't understand that, but this is what we know to be the case. There is no other book like it in all the world, nor has there ever been. There, there's no comparing, as you know, people oftentimes will uh, try to make a comparison, you know, uh, between various. Literatures of the world religions or so forth. Um, 
or, or maybe even, you know, comparison with philosophical writings or whatever, but there is no comparison. Of the 16 million volumes in the Library of Congress, there are none that are living. The Word of God is living. Now, there may be a measure of power in other books, for certain thoughts and ideas have a degree of power, but other books do not have that indescribable vitality in them which breathes and speaks and pleads and conquers as in the case of the Bible. And so that's the first thing that we need to consider. The word of God is living. The word of God itself is, as, as we read it, as we subject ourselves to it, uh, even before we perhaps believe it, it has an impact. Uh, there, there's this miraculous element to it. And, and of course, it's through the word of God that we're ultimately brought into life spiritually. Spurgeon, the great Victoria, Victorian preacher, he said this concerning the Bible. He said, why the book has wrestled with me. The book has smitten me. The book has comforted me. The book has smiled on me. The book has frowned on me. The book has clasped my hand. The book has warmed my heart. The book weeps with me and sings with me. It whispers to me and it preaches to me. It maps my way and holds up my goings. It was to me the young man's best companion and it is still my morning and evening chaplain. It is a living book full of strange mystic vitality. I love that because it's so true. That's exactly the case. And, uh, you know, I think you, you can relate to this. You know, the Bible, like he said there, it became his, his companion. That's, that's what it is. It's something that you don't feel comfortable being without. You, you want it near to you. And you, you want it ever, you know, right there, not, not just available within the reach of your hand, but of course, more importantly than that, where it's hidden in our hearts and it returns to us over and over again. So it is a living book, but it's also, as, as a living book, it is a life-giving book. And Spurgeon went on to speak about the, uh, the life-giving power of the word or the, uh, the quickening power. He said, when our soul has been faint and ready to die, a single word applied to the heart by the spirit of God has aroused us for it is a life-giving as well as a living word. And then he said this personally, I'm so glad of this because at times I feel altogether dead, but the word of God is not dead and coming to it, we are brought back to life. And this is so true. This is the experience of the servants of God, the people of God, that as, as we come to the word and we might come at times just feeling completely dead. What do we do when we, we have the, sort of that emotion of deadness in, in the sense? How do we arouse ourselves spiritually? Well, we, we come to the word. And because the word is living, there are those times when just, you know, even um, a sentence 
will have that kind of impact to spark us back to life and to energize us and to give us what we need to carry on. And so the word of God is living. Secondly, the word of God is powerful. Some translations read active. And the Greek word is the word from which we get our word energy or energetic. And so the word of God uh, is, it's energetic. It is uh, energizing. And think of um, the number of things that are attributed uh, to the energy of God's word. First of all, creation. And of course, that's what the psalm reading reminded us of today. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, um, the sky shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters, spe- utters uh, speech, night unto night, shows forth knowledge. And it's through the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. It's through uh, the breath of his lips that all things came into existence. And so when we think of the power of God's word, how powerful is God's word? God's word spoke everything into existence. Think about that. God spoke. There there was nothing. God spoke and then there was something. As, As we read the creation account in Genesis, the, um, the Latin term that's used for creation as described in Genesis is creation ex nihilo, which means creation from nothing. The Hebrew word there in the uh, Genesis text when it refers to the initial creation is the Hebrew word bara. And the Hebrew word bara means to create from nothing. And so how... Could it be that there was nothing and then something came forth? God spoke it into existence. And it's that very word that God spoke that brought all things into existence. That's the word that he's speaking of here as well. And so the word of God is powerful. It creates. The word of God is powerful. It convicts. The word of God uh, has, has this convicting power. And sometimes, and I'll go into this a little more in a second, but sometimes it can be just a, a, again, just a word or two, just a sentence that can bring uh, deep conviction upon the soul of man. Of course, it's through conviction that we're ultimately led to conversion. But it's the word of God that brings the conviction. It's the word of God that brings the conversion. Peter reminds us that we are not... um, or that we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God that lives and abides forever. Our, our very conversion is a result of God's word. God's word, in other words, then uh, it's, it's so powerful that it brings us, it recreates us, it brings us new life. And then it conforms us. It conforms us. It's through the word of God that we go through this uh, process of being conformed into the image of Christ. And the theological term for this would be sanctification. But what sanctification is, it's being made like Jesus. 
And it's a process. It's a lifelong process. But it's God's word that's doing that conforming. And it has the power to do that. And of course, there are many other things, but I'll just add one more. The word of God is powerful to comfort. Well, how many times have we needed comfort and consolation and we find it there in God's word. We find it in the pages of scripture. I don't know that there is any other religious book in the world that even offers comfort. But the Bible uh, is, is that book that brings to us that, that comfort, that uh, comfort that's really uh, unexplainable in human terms. Again, sometimes just a word can bring great peace and comfort. And so the word of God is living. It is powerful. And once again, to quote Spurgeon, he said, if you seek to do good in this sad world and want a powerful weapon to work with, stick to the gospel, the living gospel, the true gospel. There is power in it sufficient to meet all the sin and death in human nature. You know, it's so true. Sometimes I, um, I see people who are, you know, they're, they're trying to help people through their struggles and their difficulties and uh, some of this is on the internet, you know, some of it is on social media and, you know, they post little words of encouragement here or there. And, 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 you know, sometimes I see you know, friends who are believers and I know they're, they're trying to help out others and their difficulties and their struggles and so forth. But, you know, sometimes I, I, I read the, the quotations from philosophers and quotations from, you know, maybe celebrities, you know, nice little sayings that people have about, uh, certain things. And I I think, well, you know, okay, that's nice. That's sweet, but it's not powerful. It's not God's word. And in the end, all of the philosophy and all of the theories of men and, and all of those kinds of things, they, they don't, they don't have the power in them that we're talking about here. Only the word of God has that power. Spurgeon was absolutely right. If you want to do good in this sad world, Stick with the gospel. Bring people the gospel. Bring them the truth of God's word because it's only God's word that has that life and that power. But then he says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the idea here, the word sharper could be, uh, it could be translated cutting. The word of God cuts through. That's the picture. The word of God, you know, cuts, you know, we, we use the, the phrase, you know, let's just cut to the chase. You know, that means let's just get down to the real core issue here. That's what God's word does. God's word cuts through uh, the camouflage that we try to so often hide behind. And God's word just cuts all of that away. It cuts through the confusion that a situation can bring, it, get, it gets right down to the heart of the matter. It lays bare the soul. And I can tell you that I have seen God's word at work in this way so many times over the years in the lives of, of people, but I, I've experienced it in my own life as well. 
where you're, you're perplexed or you're struggling or, you know, there's a difficulty or whatever it might be. Or, or maybe there's even a, a, a sin issue in your own heart that you're not really facing. You're, you're hiding. You're trying to hide something. And, and God's word just comes and it, it cuts to the chase. It just gets right down to the point. This is the problem. And this is how it can be dealt with. I can think of the multitudes of people over the years who have come uh, maybe after a message was given and have come and said, how did you know what was going on in my life? Did my wife tell you? Did she let you know that I was going to be here this morning? How is it that you, uh, you addressed every single issue that's going on in my mind? Well, that's what the word of God does. It cuts through everything. It's living. It's powerful. It's cutting. And he refers to it. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, why a two-edged sword? Well, what is implied here is that there is no blunt side to God's word. You see, a two-edged sword has no blunt side. It cuts this way and it cuts that way. And this is what he's saying. There's not a single verse of scripture that the spirit cannot use in his dealings with men. That's why the more we can just get the word of God out there, the more impact we're going to see take place. This is what we need to bring to bear on the the problems of the world, the problems in people's lives. We need to bring to bear this sharp word of God. And there's not a single scripture that the spirit cannot use in his dealings with men. You know, isn't it true that sometimes we are reading through portions of scripture and we think, oh gosh, this is so laborious. This is so boring. What are they? Why all of these names? Why all of this detail and all of that? Well, I admit that I feel that way at times, but I have to remember that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So every single thing that's written here, it, potentially God can use this. I heard the story of a man who sat through a reading of the genealogy in Genesis 5. The genealogy in Genesis 5, it starts with Adam and then it goes through to Noah. And in all of those names that are mentioned, uh, each, each one of them uh, ends with the age of the person and then uh, a statement that, uh, and he died. So this man is not a believer. He comes, he sits, he listens to this. I mean, if you, if you were the person that brought this guy to church that day, you're just like, oh, this is like, what, what is the preacher thinking? I brought my friend here to hear the gospel and we're listening to these boring genealogies. But you know what happened? Each time he heard and he died and he died and he died, he was suddenly struck with the reality of his own mortality. He realized that he would also die just like all of these other men did and it provoked him to cry out to the Lord to save him. He got saved. Through that, that's what the author's talking about here. Sharper than any two-edged sword. 
There's no blunt side to it. God can take any portion of his word and he can use it. And again, I say this, this is why we need to get God's word out to people. It's easy to get sidetracked and to, caught up, uh, to get caught up in debate and argumentation, uh, you know, philosophically and all of those kinds of things. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's not times when we have to answer bad philosophy with good philosophy and all of that. But we better never forget that at the end, we, we've got to make sure to get the word of God in there because that's the thing that can make the difference. Another example of this and, and, the, and the power just of the word itself, uh, back in the 18th century, the great uh, revivalist George Whitfield, who um, led multitudes of people to Christ through his preaching all throughout um, England, uh, his great antagonist was a man by the name of Mr. Thorpe of Bristol. Mr. Thorpe was the head of the Hellfire Club. And as uh, Whitfield and Wesley and these others were, were preaching the gospel in these days, the Hellfire Club would come along and every time these guys would stand up to preach, they would mock them, they would jeer them, they would uh, throw things at them, they, they would just basically harass them. And this man, Mr. Thorpe, he was, he was the primary uh, antagonist. And Mr. Thorpe had memorized Whitfield's sermons. And not only had he memorized them, he could mimic Whitfield. He could, he could get up and mockingly preach a Whitfield sermon uh, in the tone of Whitfield, uh, mimicking his voice and his gestures. And so he became obviously a hit uh, in his mockery of Whitfield. Well, on one occasion, he got up and he preached a Whitfield sermon. And guess what happened? He came under the conviction of the spirit and he was converted and he became later Whitfield's greatest protagonist. He served Whitfield. He preached the gospel himself, but who would have ever expected, you know, here this, uh, this great opponent to the gospel. He came too close to the double-edged sword, and it sliced him. That's what happens with this word of God. And so he says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So dividing between soul and spirit, You see, God's word shows us the difference between what is of the soul. The word here, the Greek word is psyche. Our word psychology comes from there, the study of the soul or the mind. Um, So God's word shows the difference between what is of the soul and what is of the spirit. What is of man and what is of God? What is of grace and what is of nature? So it's God's word that, that... Um, divides where it is difficult for us to discern between these two things. It is difficult for us to know where the, the soul leaves off and the spirit begins, but it's God's word that can divide between those two things. 
One writer said this. He said, our author is not concerned to provide here a psychological or anatomical analysis of the human condition, but rather to describe in graphic terms the penetration of God's word to the innermost depth of man's personality. That's what it is. God's word penetrates. God's word goes deep. And you see, it's God's word, again, that can get in when nothing else can get in. God's word finds the chink in the armor. And there's no armor that is unpierceable. God's word can pierce through it all. I think of that, that story, you know, maybe there's a, a connection here where um, Ahab, there had been a, a, a pronouncement of judgment upon Ahab. God had declared through his prophet that he would die in the battle. And Ahab disregarded that prophet, had him put into prison. And he said, put him in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction until I return. And the prophet said to him, if you ever return, then I have not spoken the word of the Lord. So we read that Ahab then went out to battle. And he said to Jehoshaphat, who had gone out to battle with him, Wrongly, Jehoshaphat was a good king. Uh, he said, now, you, you, know, you go out in your kingly apparel. I'm just going to dress like, a, like an everyday soldier. And so Jehoshaphat, obviously being a little bit naive, did that. And when they saw him, they said, oh, there's the king. Let's kill him. They, they thought it was Ahab. And... Finally, Jehoshaphat realized the mistake and, you know, he, he got away. But, th- but there was Ahab out there thinking that he was protected. He was just like any other soldier. Nobody was going to um, direct their attack at him personally. And it says this. It says, and a man drew a bow at random and fired the arrow and it went between the joint of Ahab's armor and it killed him. And you think, wow, that's, that arrow is the word of God. You can hide, you can disguise yourself, you can put armor on, but guess what? God's word will find that joint. It will find that open space. It'll pierce through that. That's what this text is telling us, that God's word pierces through. And then he says that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word here is the word from which we get our word critic or critique. And so the word of God is the critic or the judge of our thoughts and intents. And you see, this is what God's word does. And this is why people despise it. This is why people don't want to hear it. This is why they, they resist it, because it critiques us. It shows us what's true and what's false. It shows us what's right and what's wrong. And so as we read, study, and meditate on the Word of God, it critiques and corrects us. That's its job. 
That's what it is intended to do. And so we should fully expect correction to come to us through God's word. So as we subject ourselves to it, as we, as we open it up and as we begin to meditate on it, we should expect that it's going to, at certain points, it's going to say, okay, you're, you're thinking this way, but that thinking is wrong. This is the right way to think. Uh, you're behaving this way, but that behavior is unacceptable. This is the proper way to behave. That's what God's word does. It critiques. It is a critique of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It shows us what is right and wrong, what pleases and displeases God. It brings us into line with God's will. The Bible, the word of God, as has been the case always, but probably more so right now than in any recent Time in the past is under radical attack. People trying to discredit the scripture. People trying to say that, well, you know, the Bible got it wrong about this. Well, the, these are just the opinions of men. This is before the scientific age. They didn't really know and they thought certain things, but those things were wrong. And now we know better than they did. And so you can't really trust the Bible totally or completely. You have to understand that it was written in a certain cultural context. And, you know, it, it was relevant back then. But there's much of it today that is irrelevant, outdated. And, and this, is, this is happening. This is, of course, the, the position that the liberal, uh, theologically liberal churches took decades ago and have held to and subsequently uh, emptied out their churches as a result. But there, now these days, there, there's within the evangelical camp, the, the group of people that have historically believed the Bible to be uh, God's authoritative word, now there's this, this questioning that's coming in. There's this doubt that is being cast There's this challenging of the clear teaching and the plain statements of Scripture. And so what has happened where God's word is the critique of man, man has now become the critic of God's word. But it doesn't matter because in the end, God will have the final say-so, not men. So know this, God's word will correct you. God's word will critique you. God's word will tell us that our thinking is wrong, our behavior is wrong, our attitude is wrong. Uh, God, that's what God does. You know, it's so funny today how, uh, you know, it's like people want to believe in God, but they don't want a God that's going to have any authority over their lives. They want a manageable God. They want a God that's going to be there when they get in trouble, but the rest of the time, he's just going to be silent and let them do what they want. But the God of the Bible is not silent. He will not sit by and allow us to live contrary to his will without 
critiquing us and in some cases even judging. And so since the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and so forth, since this is the case, what is to be our attitude toward it? Well, our attitude toward it should be the attitude that God called Joshua to take toward the word. In Joshua chapter one, verse eight, the Lord is speaking to Joshua, and this is what he says to him. He says, this book of the law. And of course, at the time of Joshua, it was, it was really just the mosaic um, the law that was given, that was the extent. But uh, today, now, it expands beyond that. It goes out to the entirety of Scripture. And of course, specifically and especially to the New Testament writings. But this, and this is the thing I want you to get, this is what, this is God saying this. This is what God says to Joshua. This wasn't even spoken through a prophet to Joshua. This was spoken directly by God to Joshua. And this is what he said. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This is what God says. Here's my word. Take it, believe it, meditate in it day and night, and do what it says. And what is the promise? Then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. And the prosperity that he's talking about there is not financial prosperity. The success that he's talking about is that you are going to succeed in loving and serving God and all that that entails. That's what you will succeed in. And in the end, that's the kind of success that you want because that's the only kind of success that matters in the end. When we stand before God, he's not gonna ask us questions like, how much money did you make? How successful were you in business? What was your reputation like in the community? Those are not going to be the questions. The questions are going to be very narrowed down to what did you do with my son? What did you do with my word? What did you do in regard to my will? And if we have taken to heart this admonition, we will succeed in loving and serving God and all that that entails. But one final thing, remember this. It is through the written word that we come to know the living word. You know, it's interesting when you look at the passage here, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful. Among theologians, there's, there's actually a debate as to whether the reference is to the written text or to the living word behind the written text. The living word, of course, being Jesus. And there's, there's kind of a, a, a divided camp. And it's not... In a sense, it's, it's not a big deal. It's not like there's a big fight over it. It's just uh, theological thinkers and, and great spiritual minds from previous generations had different opinions. And one of the great Puritan leaders, John Owen, and a number of other theological thinkers uh, uh, lined up under the idea that, no, this, 
This is referring to Christ. And then John Calvin and a number of other theological thinkers said, no, no, this is the written word. But the reality is, in a sense, it's both. Because there's obviously a connection between the living word and the written word. And it's through the written word that we come to know the living word, Jesus, our Savior. Paul said to Timothy, from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. So you see, Paul connects the, the holy scriptures, the written word, with knowing Christ, the living word. And so the Bible is ultimately about the Savior. It's ultimately about the Savior. And that's where everything starts. All of the things that we've talked about, the conviction, the conversion, all of that, that's, that all happens through God's word to bring us into a relationship with the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, that he might make us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. So that's what is ultimately the objective of Scripture, is to present to us the Savior. Jesus said it himself. He said to the Pharisees in his day who had taken uh, the text but missed the primary point. He said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. They testify of him. And so the first objective of the Bible is to lead us to the Savior. And once we've been led to the Savior, then it is through his word that God does that work of uh, sanctifying us, conforming us into the image of his son, revealing to us his plan, his purpose, his will, his commandments, and so forth. And so may we hold fast to this word. And in a day when it's under vicious attack, not just from with outside the church, but even more dangerously from inside the church. May we hold fast to this word, this living, powerful word. Lord, help us to do that, we pray. We thank you for your word, that it is living, that it is powerful. Lord, that it cuts to the chase that it addresses the real issues of our hearts and that it convicts us and converts us and transforms us, that it comforts us and blesses us and guides us forward in life. Oh, Lord, how we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it reveals to us our Savior, that it tells us about your love that came down to us in the person of your son. And so, Lord, may we lay hold of it today. May we cherish it. May we do what 
you commanded Joshua to do with it. Lord, may it not depart from our mouths, but may we meditate in it day and night that we would truly prosper and succeed in loving and serving you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.